Welcome to Science, A Candle in the Dark, our monthly conversation about the wonder of science and how it illuminates our lives in this incredible universe. In association with the Central Valley Cafe Scientific, we strive to make science a part of our public discourse, especially here in California's Central Valley. I'm your host, Dr. Madhusudan Katti from the Biology Department at Fresno State. As our regular caffeinistas know, the cafe is on hiatus for a couple of months in the summer. So instead of a usual interview with the month's speaker, I have something different for you. Last month, I had the opportunity to present a paper at the 8th International Urban Wildlife Conference in Chicago, where a number of scientists and wildlife professionals came together to discuss issues of wildlife and nature conservation in the cities and suburbs which now blanket so much of the earth. And I brought a little something back for you. Today, we'll hear from several scientists and a master gardener about how cities can and do provide home to many other species besides humans and what we can do to reconcile urban development with biodiversity conservation. First up, I have two women scientists working on biodiversity in urban yards in rather contrasting urban environments. I'm here on a sunny afternoon, sitting by a pond in the middle of Chicago in Lincoln Park Zoo. I'm here at the International Urban Wildlife Conference, organized by the Urban Wildlife Institute here and the Wildlife Society. And it's an interesting place to be because you think about wildlife in the middle of a city. And I have with me Dr. Emily Miner from the University of Illinois at Chicago and Dr. Kaveri Gupta, who's my collaborator in, in Fresno State, both of whom work on wildlife and human interactions in the urban residential landscape. We've been working in Chicago neighborhoods for a couple years now, looking at the kinds of things that people are doing in their yards, what they like to plant, or what they don't plant, if they let a lot of weeds come in or not. We're interested in how plant diversity changes across neighborhoods in Chicago and how that affects diversity of bees and also birds. So by diversity, you're, you mean the number of different species? Yes, the number of species. How do you study diversity of birds and plants in a city? And well, is there much diversity in the city? There's a huge diversity of plants. It's actually really challenging because there's all these crazy cultivars and, you know, people who like to garden, they make a hobby out of finding the newest, most interesting plants. And those can be really difficult to identify for us. So the plants are the hardest because there are hundreds and hundreds of, of species mm -hmm. that we've identified in the city so far. And there are many that we still don't know. And we, we can't always get them down to species level because when you're looking in people's yards without having their explicit permission, you can't walk on their property. So, you know, we identify what we can from the sidewalk. The plants are more challenging for that reason because they're more diverse, but at least they don't move. The bees, for a lot of bees, you can't identify them without looking really close under a microscope. If we're trying to get the identification to the species level, then we usually catch them and bring them into the lab. But the less invasive way to study them is just to wait for them to land on a flower. And, and then we can usually identify, if not to species level, to uh, genus level, sometimes to family level, what kind of bee it is. And so we've done both. In one case, we were really interested in studying pollination of plants in neighborhoods, and so we didn't want to remove the bees because we thought it might affect the pollination. So when we studied pollination, we definitely did not catch the bees and bring them into the lab, but in other cases, we have done that. For the birds, it's usually a point count method where you stand in one location and then mostly by listening, um, but, but sometimes you get to see them too. We just identify all the birds that are within a certain area. Why is it important for us to study this? 
Well, we found that what people do in their yards is actually really important and can have a really big effect on the birds and the bees in their neighborhood. I have a, a recently graduated PhD student who had a paper that came out in December looking at birds in residential neighborhoods. And she looked at all of the vegetation that was in people's neighborhoods and other things that people do in their yards, like provide water or food. And she also looked at environmental habitat factors outside of people's yards that might be important to birds, like street trees or distances to parks or forest preserves. And she found that overwhelmingly what people were doing in their yards had the most important effect on the birds that were in their neighborhood. So that, that that's kind of cool, I think, because it shows us that what we do can make a difference. And if we want to increase the number of bird species in our neighborhood, then, you know, maybe it's just as simple as adding a few plants and trying to convince your neighbors to do it too. And similarly with bees, we found that there's a, a pretty strong link between what people are planting in their yard and how many bees and what kinds of bees we find in the neighborhood. So, so I think it's really important. And if you can get that message out, then people might be inspired to make changes to their yard. So is it about getting a message out as in being environmentally more conscious or is there something at a broader scale of studying conservation outside the city as well? Well, for me, I think part of it is trying to get the message out and viewing residential neighborhoods and cities in general in a different way. I think traditionally they've been seen as wastelands or not very interesting yeah. to ecologists yeah. or to anyone who's interested in nature and that's really not the case and I think that actually they are kind of an untapped resource yeah. that if we just make some modifications to our green spaces then um, we actually can can use this maybe you know to increase biodiversity of the nature preserves and the parks and even we've talked about yards as corridors that might connect larger preserves and I think they really have the potential to do that and to increase the benefit that we get out of the nature reserves that we have around cities, which are, you know, limited. We only have yeah. so much space that we can buy and preserve, yeah. but people's yards can contribute to it and increase the function of that space. So what's the most surprising thing you found in your work? Well, I, I think one of the most surprising results was that we found that in neighborhoods where there were more people, there are actually a greater diversity and a larger number of bees. And that's because of the relationship between people and flowering plants. People like flowering plants. Yeah. And so when you have a lot of people living in a neighborhood, you tend to find a greater diversity of and a greater abundance of flowering plants. And so that was a, a really kind of cool result, I think, because it shows that people can actually have a, a positive effect on biodiversity sometimes. We don't think of that that, that way. We don't. We really don't. So do you think it's basically some sort of friendly neighborhood competition? Well, I hadn't thought of it that way. <laughs> there might be an element of that. I think, you know, personally, um, I think flowers make me smile. Yeah. I think a lot of people yeah, feel people like, like that. Yeah, people like that, certainly. Yeah. And, you know, when it's spring, and especially in Chicago, winter's been hard, and you're just, just really dying for some life. And um, I think so many people are really happy to, to go either to the garden store and pick up some annuals or wait for their, their perennials to come out of the ground. And I think a lot of it is kind of personal satisfaction. That's I have, mm -hmm. I, I'm not a social scientist. I have not interviewed people about this, but that's that's kind of my guess is that uh, it just makes people feel good to have the flowers around them. Yeah, so you're talking about Chicago's winters and, and how flowers might bring smiles, but let me ask Dr. Kargupta here about California where you have sun all year round and, and the context is different right now, especially with the drought. What's happening with the yards in Fresno? Well, the problem with Fresno's yards is that most people like to have grass 
and I think grass is a predominant cultural thing so they think that if, even if you can't afford to water your lawn but you still want to have grass because it gives you a social status or upwardly mobile lifestyle so people still think about grass is the most important thing and the one thing that I noticed during the focus group that we had done in 2012 was that people are afraid of bees oh, yes. you know they don't want to have bees because they think that bees are going to sting them that's a really interesting so, point I feel like there's people are torn on that right because yeah. there's a lot of um, there's been a lot of media attention toward bees lately. Yeah, yeah. And, and I think I think some people are sympathetic towards it and like the idea of bees. But we have had people tell us in our field work, when we're out looking at their yard and counting flowers, they say, oh, we used to have flowers over there, but there were too many bees, so we cut them down. Yeah. You know, if you ask them, why have, do you have these non-grass yards, those who have non-grass yards, which is mostly either water-wise landscape or they have done it because they love flowers, so they... They have no problem with bees or birds, but people who don't want to have flowers think that having flowers will attract bees and other insects and that will sting them or bite them, bite their kids, and they don't want to have them. So changing the attitude of people is an important issue and then we need to work on it. To some extent, it feels like it will happen with price. If the water price go up, people will definitely try to switch. And also it requires incentives from the city and education. I guess city or the nonprofits need to do more outreach about the values of having the water-wise landscaping. And most people think water-wise landscape equals to rocks and cactus, so xeriscopic landscape. And they don't like that. Unless we change that mindset, it would be difficult. And I'm hoping that with the drought and the water metering, this will change. So your goal in part is not just to understand what people are doing and how these interactions work, but to actually change how they work. I think mm -hmm. it would be interesting because here in Chicago, it's a larger city, so you probably have more people who care about their environment, whereas in Fresno, I kind of feel like that mindset is still not there and you need to work with the people mm. to make them understand why. At least that's what came out of my focus group study. You know, they need more information. And because water is cheap, even if you have meter, water is still cheap. It's not hitting them hard yet. It feels so. like water should be cheap in Chicago. I don't have any <laughs> idea how much water costs in Chicago. <laughs> because there is no sh there is no real shortage here. No, right? there really yeah. isn't. There really isn't. And that's one of the huge contrasts between California and here in the Midwest. Yet the, the model of residential yards is something that would work in a place like Chicago perhaps with lawns and flowers and things like that. Yeah, Whereas and Chicago also has the lot sizes are much smaller. So it's a denser city. It's yeah. a much denser city. If you have a little bit of space, it's not enough for having a lawn, but it's enough for planting flowers. Right. Yeah. So, That's an interesting um, point about. I actually think the proportion yes. of grass goes down with the smaller yeah, yards with for the sure. Smaller yards. Yeah. And uh, that's what I noticed, and that's what you see in other cities too. I mean, yeah. I grew up in Calcutta, where nobody has grass. I mean, wh whatever grass you have, the same Bermuda grass, which actually come from South Asia, you generally have, even if you have a little bit of yard, you plant flowering plants, right? Or if you don't have enough soil, you use pots you know people love flowers they yeah. want to have seasonal flowers one thing that you can actually look at how many what percentage of people actually have flowers in their 
yard or in their on their rooftop but you don't see that in fresno much you don't see people are planting flowering plants they just have grass and maybe some shrubs or trees but nothing much for flowers so that's an interesting contrast between fresno and chicago it is interesting so what i'm hearing that is surprising from what you have said also and maybe surprising to listeners is this counterintuitive thing that cities that are higher density like chicago or calcutta mm-hmm. where houses are close by and there isn't enough open space for people in their own homes they might actually be friendlier to bees and biodiversity than places like you know the suburbs in california where you have larger houses with larger lots which then means that people can plant lawns does that strike you as a I sort of surprising thing i think that's a good thing? hypothesis yeah i yeah. think that would be yeah. interesting to look at at a, at a a different aspect of the argument between whether you should have compact densities versus sprawl which is better for biodiversity so maybe you don't want sprawl but density may not be too bad it must be an optimal size of yeah. plots that makes people to have gardens Yeah, I like that idea. Hey, maybe we come up with some hypothesis test here. Yeah. yeah. Comparing across different cities. Yeah, okay. I like it. I also spoke to someone who has pioneered the study of birds in cities in the US and has been something of a role model for me. Professor John Marsluff from the University of Washington. a long time student of crows and ravens absolutely and has been studying urban ecology in seattle for a long time and he's recently published a book titled suburbia which is about as the na- name implies birds in the suburbs absolutely. so welcome to science a candle in the dark dr mazluf my pleasure mate thanks for having me so tell me about this book well it covers a variety of topics kind of the central part is really about the research that my graduate students and i have done in seattle as you said over a 15 year period to look at how birds have responded to human activity and development on the kind of urbanizing fringe around Seattle and and we try to use that science to kind of tell a story about how interesting the birds are right in people's backyards the the interesting adaptations they have to live there how they've evolved uh, in response to our activities the communities they live in and uh, use that interest and that investigation to try to get people to be informed about what's there and interested in preserving what's there. And so then I I give a series of strategies that people can do in their backyard to improve it for the sustainability of the birds that will tolerate the places we live. So it covers both the science as well as the application and what people can do with the information. Let's start with the science side of things first. I mean you've been one of the pioneers in urban ecology research in in the US I think. Sure. What are the big questions in urban ecology? The big questions for us were really how um how the overall community responded to this change in the habitat. If you want to think about a development going in, it is a place that was once forest and now it's a place that's little bits of forest intermixed with buildings and roads and people's activity and their pets and we were curious about how the whole suite of birds would respond to that so just a quick interruption uh, you said when you said community you're talking about a suite of bird species not the human community absolutely we're talking about i mean what we're measuring primarily is the bird community although we ask people a lot of questions we've done surveys to understand how they're engaged so uh, we we have been interested in the human community as well mm-hmm. um we we've done surveys to find out how people are engaged with the birds in their yard what you know do they feed them do they 
Do they uh, let their cats out? Do they provide places for those um, birds to live? But our focus, when I say community, it's the it's the group of birds that lives together in a particular area and interacts as predators and prey and competitors and facilitators uh, together. So what we discovered when we just set out to see that is that, well, it does change dramatically as you urbanize an area, but contrary to what you might think, it's not just a loss of species, but instead it's a gain of an awful lot of species um, as well, ones that take advantage of the the small ponds we put in, like the red-winged blackbirds you're hearing in the background. Mm -hmm. Classic example of a bird that you would not have in most parts of Seattle unless there were these retention ponds to help you know, hold stormwater as it as it drains off of the concrete. So in in sum, what we have seen is that the diversity actually increases as development comes into these forested areas. And uh, it rises up to a peak in these suburban settings. And that's why I titled the book Welcome to Suburbia, because that's the place where the diversity of birds is highest. Hmm. So it's not so much about the popular image, perhaps, of cities being a blight, obliterating nature. But you're actually finding that, depending on how the cities are built, bring in new species. Absolutely. You can bring in new species. Uh, and it's not just our work that shows that. I mean, the, the work you all have done in Phoenix as yeah. well, and, and Rob Blair's work across the U.S., and really all of the northern part of the world, it seems, shows that kind of response. London, for example, as a city, it in the 1800s only had about 25 species of birds in it, and mm -hmm. in 2012 there were 65 species. So even some of these older, really developed, biggest cities on the planet uh, have managed to, to attract more and more birds over time. Is this a question of cities becoming better in terms of being friendlier to birds or birds simply adapting to life in the city? Maybe a little of both, but certainly uh, there have been improvements from the 1800s in, in cities. I mean, just the, the fuel sources we use, we don't have we don't have as much coal being burned in the city. Unfortunately, it's still a lot being burned outside That's of the right, city yeah. to power it. Yeah. But uh, it's it's not the the level of pollution in the cities and the water and the air and on the land is certainly less than it was in the early industrial uh, parts of, of most of these cities. So that's improved, and there's been an awful lot of restoration and and um, consideration of the siting of parks uh, mm -hmm. for the benefit of birds. and And birds have a real advantage. I do talk about animals other than birds yeah. in the book, and birds have the advantage of wings and that they can you know access these sorts of places we put in the city for wildlife and other animals like um, amphibians and reptiles and mammals they have a much harder time because they've got to walk or crawl through through our yards and and cross our roads and that makes it difficult on them and i guess people are also more tolerant perhaps or even more attracted to birds than you know reptiles for example absolutely i think that's absolutely key and uh yeah people are innately fond of birds and and they love having them around some people will spend their entire day and all their spare money trying to get more of them around their yards but if you had a rattlesnake under your um under your walkway you, you wouldn't try to promote that most people wouldn't try to promote that yeah. some would have there been any surprises in your research have you found anything that was counterintuitive you know, just this rise in diversity initially was counterintuitive. Once you think about it, it's not really counterintuitive because when a city uh, starts to take shape into a in sprawling into a wilder area, which is what we were really looking at, yeah. you end up diversifying the sorts of land covers and habitats for different animals that exist in a small area. So you would expect diversity to go up. I guess the thing that surprised me is not only did diversity go up, but the way that these animals are adapting to our presence is really uh, quite 
remarkable and extremely rapid. Hmm. So, um, you know, some blackbirds are taking advantage of our our stores that have cafes inside and going in and foraging in there, and they're adjusting their timing of when they come and visit those places to when the stores open and close. And other species are evolving changes in plumage. The dark-eyed junco, which was studied close to you down in San Diego, that species has changed the coloration of its plumage in response to suburban swell. Females prefer a different type of male, one that's less aggressive and also kind of drabber in plumage. So in 20 years, the amount of white in the junco's tail has been reduced significantly. So the strength of natural selection and the pace of evolution in these urban areas to me has really been a surprise. And I think Darwin would have been floored by how fast some of these changes really can occur now. Yeah, that is remarkable. You know, just thinking about how quickly some things have changed, and even I think our fields of appreciation of these changes is evolving rapidly. We're right. Beginning to, beginning to realize that much is happening. Does that then give some element of hope in conservation outlook where people tend to be pessimistic about the long-term future? We, we, we hear about you know this being the Anthropocene mega-extinction and urbanization is at the forefront of destroying habitats for other species. And one is looking for ways to address that, but also some elements of hope. So is what you're, what you're saying uh, giving us some hope in terms of ways that we might be able to mitigate that? Absolutely, and that's really my goal here. I mean, I would not try to kid anybody to thinking that extinction isn't real and that this is a this is a mega extinction event that we are experiencing yeah. and living within yeah. no doubt about that yeah. however there are an awful lot of species and birds may be the best at doing this insects probably right yeah. in there with them yeah. uh, at being able to respond to very strong selective pressures and that's what urbanization is it's a strong selective pressure dramatically different and if we can help keep populations large enough so that they can, those that can survive during this strong selection can then evolve in response to it, I think there's a lot of hope there. I think a lot of species will come through um, our domination of Earth, and they will. They might look different on the outside of that, uh, but they'll come through it, and they will because of their ability to evolve and adapt to the sorts of things we do. And you mentioned earlier, our attitudes towards other forms of life has been changing and has been getting much more tolerant and much more interested in that other aspect of life for some time now, and that helps those species. Again, there's a certain filter that our lifestyle puts on, and some animals are not going to get through that filter. But those that can, because we care about them and we're willing to do things like this beautiful area we're sitting in here, Mm -hmm. um, to their benefit, they'll be able to survive and adapt to that, I think. The key is going to be allowing populations to be large and respond to our challenges. And and sometimes we get intolerant of large populations of some animals, and and we we want to reduce those populations. And that's not helping. I mean, there's enough other challenges out there that they will face, and they need to face as a large population to make it through. That's a good point. You've titled your book, Welcome to Suburbia, and one of the things that struck me that may be changing is We've sort of viewed cities as having this sort of hard edge yeah. against nature and being very resilient and inimical to wildlife in some ways. Right. But maybe suburbia is sort of a way to soften that hard edge, which to me seems like a key to managing this extinction crisis. I think that's a great, uh, great way to think about it because 
one strategy is to make the edge even harder and have very compact, dense cities and then wilder spaces. And that's good for some organisms, those that can live in very dense spaces and that need some wild areas. But we miss out on being able to provide for a lot of species that need that intermediate amount of disturbance, those early young forests, those disturbed grasslands, those those small ponds, those sorts of places that Suburbia provides. If we go to a hard edge, we lose that. By having a suburb that gradually works into the natural matrix around, or the agricultural matrix even, beyond a city, I think um, that does soften the edge, and it does allow... It kind of, to me, it's like the actual filter in real space and Mm -hmm. laid out on the ground. And the animals that can make it through that suburban area and into the city are going to be able to make it with us. And those that can't, they've at least got a chance to try to. So it's uh, a more permeable landscape. It's a more permeable screen around the city, for sure. And that's um, that's key. Otherwise, we're going to select for two very different groups of animals. And as cities, if the human population continues to grow, cities are going to take more and more of that wilder and wilder areas. So I really think suburbs have a lot to offer for wildlife conservation that we've not appreciated in the past. And I think cities have a lot to offer for some species, and I know wild spaces have a lot to offer. And, and I was going to say the, the real importance, again, of celebrating the biodiversity that can exist with us is that it, it could allow us to build a a stronger ethic to value the animals that can't live with us, those that we have to exclude that's people from places, you know, and that's a, that's a terrible and difficult decision to have to make, but it's required for some species. And if we don't build this tolerance and this interest in other life by appreciating the things that do live with us, I don't think we'll ever be able to build an ethic to conserve things in far away, distant places away from us. And, and we clearly need that kind of hopeful attitude too to be able to set aside those wild places. Finally, some practical advice on what you can do to support a healthy ecosystem in your own yard. This is Stephanie Slanka with the Lab of Reconciliation Ecology with Fresno State and Science, A Candle in the Dark. And today I have Kim Ehrman with me, who is a certified environmental horticulturist. Um, she resides in New York. She's a master gardener, master naturalist, accredited organic lawn care professional. Land care. Land care, excuse me. <laughs> Big difference. Kim was also awarded the Silver Award of Achievement by the Gardener Writers Association in 2014. Tell us a little bit about your company. Eco Beneficial I created as a way to educate and inspire individual homeowners, commercial clients, landscapers, everyone you can think of to landscape and garden a little bit differently to make huge ecological improvements. Right. You're talking about creating successful habitats in these urban areas to really enhance your backyard and really right. make it an ecosystem. I like how you called it an ecosystem. Yes. And that, you know, when we buy a house, we're buying a structure, but we also have a yard to that. And that's right. essentially an ecosystem that we need to take care for and hopefully have conservation value in some way. Mm-hmm. How do we, how can we care for our lawn in a way that 
reduces water usage, as well as maintaining ecstatic value, as right. well as catering to the native species mm-hmm. in the Central Valley. My first suggestion is to change our aesthetics just a little bit. Mm-hmm. Um, we have embraced the lawn, which is not a native of exactly. species. It's something that we really adopted from Europe, mm-hmm. and those those turf species really resent being here, and they're, I call them like demanding babies. They're always yeah. hungry, they're always thirsty, they always mm-hmm. need attention, and the one thing that they accomplish, we don't let them do in our ecosystems. We don't allow them to go to seed. Yeah. So that's the one resource that would actually be useful to wildlife. So changing our aesthetics a little bit and only keeping the lawn that we really use and that we really need. So if you have kids that are playing ball or you're having a lot of picnics or whatever, fine. Keep that amount of lawn, but get rid of the rest. Now, what do you do with the rest? If you like that lawn look, think about using some native species that are grasses, Mm -hmm. short native grasses that don't have to be mowed. And there are a number of really successful ones. Beyond that, think about diversity. Think about not having a monoculture. Like, Mm -hmm. Think about replacing the lawn with a lot of different plants that support lots of different creatures. Mm -hmm. Diversity is really key in terms of ecological health. And that's really important for human health. Think about using perennials. Think about using grasses. Think about using trees and shrubs, things that are regionally native to your area. So I'm going to put in a plug for a couple organizations in California. First, if you don't know what species are native to your region, and it's super important to stay regional, join your local chapter of the California Native Plant Society. Mm -hmm. It is the largest native plant society in America, has fantastic information, and membership is very inexpensive, and you get lots of great info. Secondly, refer to an online database called CalFlora, a great database that includes some exotic species, but mostly native species, and you can look by county, by region, Mm -hmm. and see what's native to the area. So those are two really great resources I would suggest. Is there other ways that people can promote ecological landscaping in their community? Well, I suggest that um, you use signage when you mm-hmm. start landscaping a little bit differently to attract a wildlife and to have a healthier ecosystem, like um, wildlife habitat sign from the National Wildlife Federation. Um, that's just one example. is a great way to get the word out to other people what you're doing and to encourage people to ask questions and start thinking differently. Mm-hmm. Obviously, any of our community areas are just ripe for native gardening yeah. um, and commercial spaces. So mm-hmm. you might, for example, be a member of a church. Why not have a garden, a native garden there that attracts lots of species? At your local school, fantastic way to get kids engaged with nature. Where can people find you? I know you're active with your blog on Mm -hmm. YouTube. and Just come to uh, www.ecobeneficial.com, so E-C-O, beneficial, all one Mm -hmm. word, dot com. And I encourage listeners to email me questions. I'm more than happy to answer them. And just start. Don't be afraid to start. The best way that we learn sometimes in gardening and landscaping is making mistakes so just go out there and do it and that's our show for today i hope you enjoyed this little journey with me to chicago to explore the biodiversity in our urban environments i will bring you some more interviews that dig deeper into urban ecology next month the next episode of science a candle in the dark will air on tuesday july 28th The Central Valley Cafe Scientifique will be back in Peeves Pub in September for its ninth season. For more information about the cafe and announcements about upcoming events, 
As always, please visit our website at valleycafesci.org or you can find us on Facebook and Twitter. Our show is produced by Vic Bedoyan and our theme music was composed by Scott Hatfield. Tune in to hear from me again next month. Until then, happy sciencing! Because remember, science is a verb. <laughs>